You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. No one lies like family. We lie to each other all the time. We lie to keep each other at a distance, to give ourselves some elbow room in the claustrophobic nuclear unit, to spare each other's feelings, to cut short a conversation or to begin one, to ensure that the artichoke heart softness of our insides is sealed safely off forever. As I write this, my two toddlers are in the next room, cheerfully belting out some interminable preschool song and throwing stuffed animals at each other. They're too young to ask me about my missing father, or my never-spoken-of mother, or why I am the way I am. They're too young to understand how much they don't know. Then again, I haven't started lying to them. Yet. This is the story of digging out the biggest lie I was ever told. That's Liz Shire, book editor, product developer, and author of the new memoir, Never Simple. The epigraph to Liz's book, from the poet Adrienne Rich, goes like this. When we discover that someone we trusted can be trusted no longer, it forces us to re-examine the universe, to question the whole instinct and concept of trust. For a while, we are thrust back onto some bleak, jutting ledge, in a dark pierced by sheets of fire, swept by sheets of rain, in a world before kinship or naming or tenderness exist, we are brought close to formlessness. This is a story of lies, trust, and one woman's journey to be brought back from that bleak, jutting ledge and make herself whole. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I was born in Yorkville, which is the very far east neighborhood in New York City. It is basically falling off into the East River. And when you hear grew up in New York City, I think a lot of people think Gossip Girl, and that really could not have been further from the truth of my New York City in the 80s and 90s. We were all very middle class, um, a kind of Manhattan that doesn't really so much exist anymore. I lived with my mother. We lived in a one bedroom apartment on 81st Street, and it was a very typical setup for the time. 
where I lived in the bedroom and she had created out of the hall closet uh, a little nook for herself where she had put a twin bed and we lived there together. And I did not know at the time that it was unusual for a mother and daughter to share a home with nobody else there. It wasn't really true of other people I know once I got to school. But as a small child, I didn't know any of that yet. And so there we were, just the two of us together. Describe your mother for me, you know, your mother during your childhood. My mother was an incredibly charming woman. She was brilliant. She had been an attorney when very few women were attorneys. She was one of the very few women in her law school class in the early 60s. Uh, she went to NYU and her professors would have ladies night the first Monday of every month. And that was the one day that they would call on the women in their classes. And this was something I knew about her, even though she no longer worked as a lawyer, she was retired. And because I was so young, I didn't then know that people don't generally retire in their late 30s. I didn't know that there was something wrong with that statement. But she could be enormously charming. She was a lot of fun. She told great stories with, you know, the, the arms pinwheeling to, to gesture and, and illustrate what she was talking about. Uh, she was a quite a chain smoker. She smoked between four and six packs a day, depending on how stressed out she was that particular week. Um, and so she had this sort of deep throaty voice and this deep chuckle that she would illustrate her stories with. And she treated everything else in our lives as sort of incidental to the fact that we were going to have fun together. So she would just take me out of school on a moment's notice if it was a good sledding day in the park or if there was something good at the Met that she wanted to see when it wasn't too crowded. Um, and she just was not interested in anything that would get in her way. No, doesn't sound like she was very interested in rules. No, <laughs> not particularly. And I thought everything in our lives was normal until I got to school and I started realizing that things in other kids' lives weren't quite the same. My mother did not have uh, a hold on her anger and she had a lot of anger. There was no logical chain between an occurrence and her reaction to the occurrence. So whether I did something really terrible and misbehaved or whether I left a water glass in the wrong place, you know, sort of one time out of every 10, the rage would come up. And it was like, you know, the movie, The Terminator, it was like talking to her there where the red light would come on behind the eyes. and the screaming would begin and I would either lock myself in the bathroom or in the closet or just sort of try to stay out of her reach. And you could see if you were dumb enough to get close enough to see that there was just nobody driving the bus there, that she was completely out of control. And when the adrenaline wore off, then the, the self-excoriation would come in. Then she would sink to the ground, she would weep. Uh, what have I done to you? Why do I treat you like this? I'm so terrible, I'm such a terrible mother. Um, and I would just try to comfort her because returning to that kind of normal before the rage was the best we could do. What did she actually look like when she would fly into one of these rages? So my mother was a, a small woman. When she got pregnant with me, she didn't weigh 100 pounds and she had a sort of perfect blonde cloth, if you can think of the you know, 70s hair, uh, hairstyle with the, with the flip in the front. Um, and when she got really angry, you know, her face would turn red, the hair would floof up, um, and the spit would start flying. She would, she would lose the ability to control her mouth or her body. And she became huge to me in my eyes. Like, you know, I was a very small child, and although she was not a large person, she became like a giant. What did you know about your father at that stage in your life? What was the story about your father and where he was? So I didn't know much. When I was very young, I didn't really have a firm grasp on the idea that there was such a thing as a father. I understood that there were men. We knew men, but I didn't understand that there was, you know, a, at least a man genetically related to each child. When I was very young, she told me a story about my father that went like this. Uh, my father was her second husband. She had married someone uh, right out of college. They had been married for some time and divorced amicably. And because it was a second marriage, they had a very small ceremony. She had borrowed a pantsuit from a friend, which she returned after they were done. They were only married for six months or so. Uh, he didn't have living family. They didn't have a lot of friends. And one night he was driving and he got to a stop sign and he stopped and the driver behind him didn't and he died instantly. And she was in such a storm of grief that she burned all his belongings, 
burned all the pictures of him, burned all the evidence that he had ever been there. And at the time, I believed this because you believe what your parents tell you. It wasn't until I was a little older that I started to realize that that story was extremely convenient and didn't actually make any sense at all. It didn't fit together. It didn't fit with our lives. You know, people don't just disappear off the planet, unable to be found, and that it just wasn't credible that nobody who had known him was still alive or reachable. And so I thought if she is lying about his death, it must be that he's still alive. I couldn't imagine a reason why he would have died one way and she would tell me a different way. So I assumed that he was somewhere still around. And so, you know, we would all walk around New York and I would just sort of look at all the men who were, you know, roughly the right age and, and blonde and might potentially look enough like us and think, you know, is it you? Are you the one? I thought that there must be some really romantic adventurous story as to why he was still alive, but nobody would let me talk to him, right? That he was a spy or, you know, wrongfully imprisoned or an astronaut abandoned on a distant planet or something. Um, and then as I got into middle school and high school and got to be disaffected, I thought, maybe he's just married. <laughs> but I, I, I knew that I was being told something that was evidently untrue. I just couldn't figure out why. Liz goes to middle school at Hunter, an excellent, highly competitive public school in Manhattan. And during this time, her mother's rage escalates. She's violent toward Liz. And Liz's sense that things just don't add up about her father is really sinking in. Liz grows more and more depressed. Her mother's volatility and her father's elusiveness sit at the center of her middle school years. I was kind of a weird kid. You know, I was very socially awkward. I, I was depressed. I don't think we knew at the time what depression looked like in teenagers or young teenagers. You know, now I think it would have been diagnosed much earlier and, and probably treated. But I was super, super unpopular. You know, there were bullies in my school that made my life pretty hard. And I knew that in a way they were right, that there was something wrong with me. There was something wrong with my house. And, you know, every 12 or 13 year old kid thinks that. But in my case, it was really true. We were not living a normal life. Um, and I, I took that very much to heart and thought it was something integral to me. The fact that my father was not there just really meant that there was no one there to see us. We lived this life like a panic room in the middle of this city of eight and a half million people, but there were no eyes on us. No one knew what was happening when the apartment door closed. And my mother was enormously protective. I was not allowed to go to friends' houses for the most part. I was largely not allowed to leave the apartment without her eyes on me or the eyes of uh, friends, parents who she trusted. And so there was just no one, no one to see what was happening. And so I despaired because to me, there was something irretrievably wrong with our lives and there was no reason to think it could ever get better. A lot of this came to a head when I was about 15 and I had, unbeknownst to my mother, started dating uh, an older boy at my high school. And he was a guitar player and a baseball player and, you know, all of those things that are very, very attractive to 15-year-old girls. And my mother, at that time, I don't remember what it was, I think maybe she was taking a class. I knew she was out one afternoon a week and so, you know, when you grow up in New York City, there's not a lot of places to sneak away and make out, right? Because there's no basements, so there's no ratty couches, and there's no riverbanks, so there's nowhere to just sort of sneak away. You really have to work at it to find somewhere private. So I sneaked him into my apartment, and my mother came home early and caught us. And she went ballistic and ended up sending me to my godparents' house in New Jersey, where I stayed for a couple of months until she calmed down. And that was really this kind of oasis of time living with them when I started to realize that other people do not live on this sort of precipice of constant anger and rage and sadness. Many people live with an even keel in the house. Many people never scream at each other at all, which was a totally novel concept. And even though I was not living in my mother's house at the time, she decided that I had to be tracked. Uh, and so she went to the principal and my teachers and she had them all sit down together with the guidance counselor and she presented them with a plan for her unmanageable daughter in which she was going to hire a Barnard student to follow me in the streets should I ever come home. I would not have access to the phone, of course, only landlines at the time. And every time I went to a class, I was going to have to sign in. And we didn't do that at my school. She required them to put together this whole system of clipboards and, and signatures. And half the time they, of course, forgot that that was supposed to happen at all. This really 
moving thing happened on one day where I was, I was sitting in the hallway in a free period and my most terrifying teacher came up to me and I thought, what have I done wrong? And she said, so about this signing in business. And I said, yes. And she said, I want you to know that none of us have seen you do anything wrong and whatever happens, none of us will. And that really blew me over because at that moment I understood that when they sat in that room with the principal and the guidance counselor, they weren't nodding along going, oh yes, totally, you know, terrible, out of control, teenager, what can we do to rein her back in? They were thinking, this mother is crazy. And it was the first time that I understood that people outside of our lives were seeing that her behavior was completely out of the realm of reason and that her reactions could only kindly be classified as only overreactions. And that someone actually saw what was going on. So that was a really seminal moment during those years. These seminal moments are so important in our lives, the ones during which we're seen, recognized, witnessed. Thankfully, now some eyes are on Liz and her mother, and she no longer feels like the two of them are entirely shrouded, their troubles invisible. Their dynamic has been so deeply toxic, so much so that when her mother really gets angry, She threatens Liz by telling her she's going to put her beloved dog to sleep. But now, after this encounter with her teachers at school, a bit of light begins to dawn. Her teachers aren't out to get her. No, they're actively protecting her. The years pass and Liz takes off for college. She's still in touch with her mom, but she's trying to keep her distance. Then she's home from school on vacation, when the dam breaks yet again, this time with a number of surprising declarations bombshells, really, from her mother. I was home for fall break, and I was sort of sprawled on the couch in the living room, reading something. And she came in, you know, wearing one of her crepey moo She, by that time, rarely left the apartment and often rarely left her bedroom. She was severely agoraphobic. So she came in and was sort of fiddling with the doorknob, clearly very nervous, which was definitely not her milieu, so I knew something was up. And she said, so you said you're going to try to get a learner's permit while you're home from college. And yes, I'd I'd gone to college and found out that people outside New York City drive and that was stunning to me. So I was going to go do this thing. And I said, yeah, that's right. And she said, you're not going to be able to do that. And I said, okay, why? And she said, well, you don't have a birth certificate. And I said, oh, I can just get a copy. And she said, no, 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 no. You don't have a copy of your birth certificate. I never filed a birth certificate for you. There's no record of your birth at all. And I said, okay, why? And she then came out with this you know, life-changing line, I was married when you were born, but not to your father. And it turns out, all of this that I discovered over that next 20 minutes or so, that the first part of the story she told me was true. She was married to this, by all accounts, very lovely man. Uh, after college, they were married for eight or 10 years, divorced, went their separate ways. What I did not know was that she had married a second man, a man named Merrill, sometime after that. And in the car on the way back from their wedding ceremony, he pulled the car over to the side of the road and popped the hood because the voices from the engine were talking to him and he needed to answer them. So there were clearly, there was was a lot going on with this man, uh, not the least of which was that he was beating the crap out of my mother. And she ultimately left him. She... uh, you know, she would call the police, and, and it was the 70s. I don't think domestic abuse was even a, a term. And they would come and say, you know, this is between a man and his wife, and then they would leave again. And so she finally locked him up, and he would call, she would refuse to talk to him, and eventually he stopped calling. But really the key point here is that they never divorced. And so until he died, when I was a junior, a senior in high school, my mother was married to a man I had never heard of. And looking back, even at all of the kind of weird and crazy things that happened. I think that's what strikes me as the strangest, that she and I were living in this like incredibly codependent, tiny, claustrophobic twosome, and there was this major thing about her that I didn't know. 20 minutes. 20 minutes and a lifetime. The information is onrushing, a torrent. Liz's mom tells her the truth for the first time, the truth of her father. He was this beautiful man, 10 years younger than she was. He picked her up in Central Park by asking for a piece of her New York Times. 
a classic 1970s pickup if there ever was one. They embarked on a love affair that lasted six months, maybe a year. They were both fairly depressed. One day she realized she hadn't heard from him in a little while. So she called his apartment, and his ex-wife picked up the phone. The week before, he had jumped from the roof of his building and fallen 16 stories to the concrete below, where he died. And so my mother went into an even greater depression. And after some months, she stirred herself to have a doctor's visit. She was not feeling well. And she was seeing this sort of doddering old character of, of a doctor. And he ran some blood tests and said, you have a tumor on your pituitary gland and you are dying. And so she, in her grief, picks herself up and gets on a plane and flies to California where her brother is living, who had married a woman with uh, four young children who they were raising together. And my aunt took one look at her when she got off the plane and said, honey, you're not dying. You are pregnant. And by that time, she was almost five months along and there was nothing to do about it. And her idea was that she would put me up for adoption when I was born. She had never intended to have children. She was alone, but it was not not something she had intended to take on. And when I was born, apparently I didn't cry. And she thought, well, maybe maybe it's quiet. I could just, let's see how long this lasts. And on day 12, she thought, maybe this kid is mute. And she poked me with a diaper pin and it turned out I was mute. <laughs> and she decided to keep me. And, you know, being my mother, she didn't name me for the first six months because there was no need to distinguish me from anybody else. There were only two of us in the apartment. The baby was enough. And so we went on. And so they went on. Liz graduates from college and begins working in publishing. She's living in New York City, in a relationship with a woman. She's making her way, but there's always the specter of her mother, the possibility of a phone call that will upend her hard-won equilibrium. Once, Liz is at her job when she receives a call from her mother, and she's using what Liz describes as her tranquilizer voice. Her mom tells Liz that she's missing her own mother, who has been dead for 40 years, and that she has a brilliant idea. She knows Liz doesn't want to have children herself, but maybe Liz could give birth to a stillborn baby. Yes, stay with it. A stillborn baby who could then be buried with her long-dead mother, so that she wouldn't be lonely in the cemetery. Imagine being on the receiving end of that phone call, sitting in an office, surrounded by coworkers, colleagues. Liz has been trying to understand her mother all her life. Now, she has to consider. Is her mother mentally ill? Heavily medicated? Eccentric? Dangerous? Hurting? All of the above? At that stage, she was calling me a couple of times a day, probably. She did not have bipolar disorder, but she did have manic phases. She would have swings where these frequent calls would happen. And then if she took enough tranquilizers, it would come out in situations where, just as an example, she would decide that it was the right thing for me to somehow orchestrate a stillbirth. And then, I don't know what she thought we would do, sneak into the graveyard in the middle of the night. I don't know what the logical chain there was. But... Danny, I realize that it may sound strange to say this now, but I actually found those moments kind of validating because so often her behavior was just on the edge of eccentric and really out of the realm of normal. And those moments reminded me, like, this actually is not normal. Like, most parents don't do this. Most parents do not call and request that you have a stillborn baby. This is not, <laughs> this is not on the normal list. And so sometimes these were very comforting conversations because they reminded me that I was dealing with something that I could not predict and that if my response to it was not perfectly formulated or sufficiently comforting, because of course I felt responsible for her, uh, that that was not some deficiency in me. It was that the situation was inherently bananas. Bananas is one word for it, but there is also another. One afternoon... Liz and her mother are having lunch outdoors at a restaurant in Manhattan when her mother lights up a cigarette. The waitress comes over and tells her that smoking is against the law. And her mom? She goes completely crazy on the waitress, livid at being told what to do. And then Liz's mother uses a word for the first time, just slips it into the conversation after the waitress walks away. And that word is borderline. 
and you know the the moment she said that word, I think I think in all of this story there are these pivot points, like one of those little yardsticks that were foldable, and the whole thing just completely goes off into a direction I wasn't expecting. And the moment she said borderline was one of those moments, because again, for all of this time, I had known she was eccentric. I had known there was something odd about her. I had known that people didn't respond to her the way they responded to other people, but I didn't know what it was. And having a diagnosis just meant the world to me, just that there was now something I could read, there was something I could research. This happened to other people, right? This wasn't something that we were just the two of us tussling around between us, but this was something out in the world that psychiatrists dealt with and had written articles on, and I could read those articles. And so I went and looked up the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. And people with borderline personality disorder obviously have a, a wide range of s- severity and symptoms, but it's characterized by a, a, extreme fear of abandonment, usually that comes from some kind of trauma in childhood. And so people who are suffering with this cannot abide the idea of a distinction between them and another person, particularly between them and their children. And so, so much started to fall into place. Her her inability to let go of me in any way, her screaming fits of rage when, as an adult, for example, I would fail to send her a Valentine's Day card. These kinds of things made her livid, and I never understood why. And that helped me understand that those, those things where I was not responding to her the way that she wanted, where I was not prioritizing her as the sole thing in my life, sent her into terror, absolute panic that she had been abandoned in the bottom of, figuratively, the bottom of a deep well with no getting out of it. That's a great description. So in this period of time of young adulthood, your girlfriend at the time has a wealthy aunt who just really wants to help you figure out more about who your father was and find out more as much as you possibly can about him. So she offers to hire a private investigator so that was an absolutely amazing and shocking conversation I had with, we called her Auntie, because that had frankly just never occurred to me. At that time, I had thought this man is gone, he is dead, There, there's no way I'll ever find out about him, so it was astonishing to have this avenue opened. And so I found out this story when Auntie called me. I was at work, I was an editorial assistant at Random House, and the way it was set up was that the, the cubicles were in the middle of the aisle and there were offices to either side. So you were like in a little moat in the middle of the stream with people just walking by on either side. And Angie calls and says, we have to talk. I have the private investigator on the line and he found out something about your father. And, you know, I look up and there's 17 people standing around me talking about publicity plans. And so I just sort of put my shoulders up around my ears and tried to make a little climate control dome around myself. It turns out that Liz's father's father, her paternal grandfather, had been a very popular entertainer. He had a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He was in a movie in the 1940s. He wrote hundreds of songs that were constantly on the radio. And he was a fantastically popular children's entertainer. And as the investigator was reading this, he said, you know, I I used to listen to Frank Luther stuff when I was a kid. Isn't that amazing? And... It was just so astonishing to me that, first of all, I had had grandparents, which I'd never really thought of before. In the face of the more immediate loss, I I just didn't think beyond my father's absence. And that other people had known them, that many people, thousands and millions of people knew who my grandfather had been. And that was absolutely shocking. I also discovered that I had an aunt living and living on Roosevelt Island, which is a small island that, that sits alongside Manhattan. Um, And she was married and had two children that I had cousins living. And these were people who were just, you know, half a mile from where I grew up and I had never known they were there. So I called my aunt at home that evening and she had been prepped by her husband. uh, So it was not a complete shock that I was calling out of the blue. And I need to, to stress here that none of these people knew my mother had existed. They certainly didn't know that I existed. So this is really just the the past coming back 25 years later or whatever it was really is as a shock to all of these people. And so, you know, my heart thumping in my throat, I make this call and we had a, you know, perfectly pleasant, maybe five or 10 minute conversation where I asked some 
some general questions. Where had he gone to high school? You know, what was he like? Those sorts of things. And she gave me perfectly polite but short answers. And over the course of conversation, she let me know that she and my father had not gotten along. They were not close. There was clearly something else there. There was a lot of history between them that was not perhaps always very positive, that she remembered him with a great deal of pain and that maybe she viewed my coming, my popping up um, out of nowhere, not not with any joy, not with any surprise, that all I was doing was reminding her of a painful time in her life. And then we hung up. And I, I thought to myself that, you know, number one, I, I didn't want to cause someone pain. That certainly wasn't my intention. And then number two, if I was going to find out anything about my father, my mother remembered almost nothing about him, just a, a handful of things, that maybe I didn't want it to be from someone who hadn't gotten along with him. Maybe I wanted to be from someone who could remember him only with, with love. And during that conversation, that brief conversation, she did agree your request to send you a photograph of him. Yeah, I'd never seen a photograph of him. My mother had saved uh, an Oldsmobile ad that she'd cut out of a magazine from, I think, 1977 or 78 uh, that she had seen when she already knew she was pregnant, where there was uh, a model who looked enough like my father that she thought would suffice, that she could say this is what he looked like, but she had no actual pictures of him. But the photograph doesn't come right away. Liz gives up on the idea that it will ever come. Reflecting on this, she writes... It's a hard lesson that when your needs bump up against a stranger's pain, their pain always takes precedence. But later that year, the holidays arrive, and she receives a Christmas card from her aunt with photos in it. I open it, and into my hand falls these four pictures. You remember what pictures looked like from that time, these sort of sepia-toned, you know, colorized but sepia-toned square but with the corners rounded off and they fall into my hands and I was I had just come into the house with my girlfriend at the time and I just sat down right in the middle of the kitchen floor um and it was you know the world went white around me I was just in absolute shock because there he was the pictures were taken a couple of years before he died he died at 28 so he was must have been 25 or 26 in the pictures a young man and you know the age I was at the time we were contemporaries And at that moment, I understood why I looked nothing like my mother, because he and I could have been, I happened to have at that point in my life very short hair, we could have been exchanged for each other from the neck up, and it would have been difficult to tell us apart. We had the same bulbous nose and the same sloping chin and the same infuriating cowlick. Um, And it was the first time I had looked at someone who looked like me, and that was really just an incredible moment. We'll be right back. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity. For yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. As time moves on and Liz continues to build her life as a young adult, with all the professional and personal changes that entails. All the while, she keeps seeking out information about her father. She eventually is able to get in touch with her father's ex-wife, Lydia, who, unlike her aunt, responds to Liz and the situation with kindness, not self-protectiveness. I had hit a sort of strange milestone in my life where I just had an absolutely terrible breakup had major surgery, lost my job, and moved all in the course of a couple of months. And so suddenly I found myself with time on my hands, and I hired a forensic genealogist. Um, again, it turns out, just like with the private investigator, that these things which remain mysteries for decades can be found just for the, for the price of finding a professional. Um, and she put me in touch with my father's wife. They were not officially divorced at his death. So she wrote uh, an email to Lydia just saying there's someone who would like to know about this man. And she wrote back an absolutely lovely response, telling me more in that two pages than I had ever known about him before. And ending saying, I'd be very curious to know who this relative is and, and how this person is connected to the Luther family. And again, I'm in this, this quandary of, I am about to bring my own pain potentially into someone else's life. It turned out my father had been an alcoholic and they had split when he was unable to stop drinking. Uh, finally, they, they reconciled. He was going to move back in with her. He arrives at the door drunk and she turns him away and he leaves the apartment door, takes the stairs, goes up to the roof and jumps off. And now that I know this, I'm thinking, how can I bring up these memories again um, things that she has surely put to rest just because I am desperate to know anything about him. But she was enormously generous in sharing that information with me, even though it must have brought up quite a bit of buried sadness. And you tell her that the way that you're related to him is that you're his daughter. Yeah, uh, and I sent her a picture of myself at about the same age he was when he died. And... I thought to myself, you know, there's there's a lot of ways this could go. She could she could laugh at me. She could say, no, he had a vasectomy. Like, you're you're definitely not his daughter. And I could have to start all over again. Like, this could all have been a mistake. This could not have been the guy. And I was really trepidatious about losing the this one lead that I had. But I sent this picture, and she said something to the effect of, "I don't need a DNA test to know that you are his daughter." So that was quite quite a moment. Um, and she shared some more pictures with me that, of course, I had not seen and told me about what he had been like as a young man, which was charming, athletic, loving, affectionate, and in the grip of an illness that was ultimately the, the cause of his death. She also tells you where she scattered his ashes. Yes, and it turned out that she had taken the ashes and scattered them in Turtle Pond under Belvedere Castle in Central Park, or what would become Turtle Pond. And I mean, I spent half my childhood running up and down those steps. 
which is one of the things that that in retrospect is so startling to me that you know, he grew up in this very you know wealthy very troubled family with lots of people and I grew up just me and my mother but a mile away and our lives were overlaid over this map of a very small area of the earth and I had been in proximity to his family his living family and to his remains in the place I was playing as a child and so I went to Turtle Pond and I sat down and I talked to him for a while and you know in Central Park I certainly wasn't the only person having a visible conversation with myself that day didn't trouble anyone and I said goodbye to him there in a way that I had not thought I would be able to As her father's life begins to crystallize for Liz, her own life gains focus, too. She's no longer in flux between jobs and relationships. She's advancing her career and starting a family with her partner, Ari. She's pregnant when they get married. At their wedding, Liz's mother, whose physical and mental health has been on the decline, makes a bit of a statement. She certainly did. She, um, I think at heart what she wanted was to to have that connection with me and to be the last person who saw me before the wedding. She wanted the movie moment of pushing the bobby pins into my hair and giving me something blue and all of that. But we didn't have that relationship. By that time, she was uh, even more disjointed from reality than she had been in previous years. It had been a very challenging couple of years uh, and we were not close at all. And so the way she decided to make that happen was by throwing a fit as I was standing upstairs uh, waiting to process down the aisle for the wedding um, and say that if if I did not let her walk me down the aisle, which had never been the plan, uh, she was going to stand in the middle of the synagogue and scream. And she instead did go to the lobby and start screaming until I agreed to see her. And the you know the rabbi came up and said, we can do whatever you want here. You can see her. We can hold off the ceremony until she calms down. We can have security take her out. We will do whatever you want. And I realized that, you know, Ari and I had known each other then for 25 years. We had known each other since summer camp. But his family didn't know me. We hadn't been dating a year at that point. And that would be the first thing they knew about me, was that their golden child, son slash nephew slash cousin, had just married a woman who got her mother arrested at the wedding. And I, I didn't want that to be the story. And I think my mother knew that, that I wouldn't let that happen. And so I agreed to see her and she came up and she, you know, patted me on the head and said something nice. And then she sat down perfectly nicely and let the, the wedding occur. But that was another one of those pivot points <laughs> in our relationship. Another pivot point in your relationship is that once you become a mother yourself, um, you have two children, you're able to see your mother's inability to be a functional grandparent much earlier than you ever had been able to understand her inability to be a parent, which I think is something that's so universal when somebody's had an extraordinarily difficult parent is that uh, when you become a parent yourself, suddenly you see the level of dysfunction or mental illness and the cost of it and you're not going to let that happen to your children, the thing that happened to you. Yes. Yet another pivot point occurs when Liz receives a call that her mother is being evicted from the apartment she's lived in for years, the same apartment that Liz has co-signed the lease with her each year. So one day when I was pregnant with my second, and I had, I had my kids in very quick succession, so I'm holding... I've got Rachel in a, in a wrap and the bump, seven-month bump of David. It looked like a camel on its side. Um, you know, swanning through the, the D.C. heat. We had moved to D.C. for Ari's job. And the phone rings, and it's Adult Protective Services in New York, uh, asking if I'm planning on showing up for any of the court appearances. And I say, what court appearances? And it turns out that she had stopped paying rent about a year earlier. And the backstory on this is that since very soon after college, I had started paying some of her bills. Another one of the sort of mysteries around my childhood was that my mother hadn't worked since the early 70s before I was born. And to this day, I don't know what her source of income was. I don't know how she raised me. 
the high school, she'd rented out the additional rooms in the apartment to international students. She'd gone to bed and breakfast, that kind of thing. The apartment was her one asset. Her, her rent-stabilized lease was her one asset. And she had called me in the middle of that awful breakup and said, I need a little help with the rent this month. And I said, I'm in the middle of a move. Things are going badly at work. I think I'm going to lose my job. I, I just don't have it right now. And she said, fine, don't worry about it. I'll make it. Don't, don't worry about it. And it seemed like she had things under control, but it turned out that was the last month she ever paid rent. Now, a year later, it turns out she has been going to housing court all this time. She has a court-appointed lawyer from the from the city, but every time the judge says, and where is the lawyer for the other Ms. Shire, she just sat there silently. And so I had never shown up. I didn't know what was happening. Adult Protective Services was very concerned. She did not seem to understand the gravity of the situation. And over the next two years that she lived in that apartment, Ari and I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours trying to find her housing that she would accept. Uh, if you are impoverished and elderly, you are actually in a somewhat better situation than if you are middle class because there are no assets to spend down. She had qualified for Medicaid, you know, years and years before. She had neither income nor assets. I think her total income was something like $700 a month in, in Social Security and food stamps. And so there are places that take Social Security or Medicaid subsidies, but she wouldn't agree to go to them. She would throw out what seemed to me to be totally insane refusals, like, it's in Brooklyn, you know I don't do Brooklyn, or there's a shared fridge, how would I ever go somewhere with a shared fridge? And I couldn't tell if it was her doing her, like, elderly, cantankerous Jewish lady persona thing, or if she genuinely didn't understand that she was in the process of being evicted and that she would not have anywhere to go. And I think looking back on it, I think there was probably a spectrum. Probably at the beginning, she was doing a shtick because she was scared. But by the end of it, she really did not seem to have any concept of what was going on. And by the very end, after the, I don't know, the 10th, the 11th hearing, a judge came and did a bedside hearing and ultimately decided that there was no point in continuing them because she just kept repeating these people should leave me alone. I have a month's rent saved, not realizing that by that time, she was three years in the hole. And she's also put you and your own finances and therefore your family in a kind of jeopardy. Yeah, she, she sure had. Um, I did not know that there was a lawsuit out there naming me and had it gone to a judgment that would have, you know, <laughs> whatever the adult version of going on your permanent record is. You know, we're, we're in D.C. It's a, it's a government town. Most jobs require a background check. I couldn't have passed a security clearance anywhere. We couldn't get insurance at one point just because there was a lawsuit outstanding. It took a, a long time. We ultimately did extricate ourselves from it, but uh, but my mother obviously remained, remained in the crosshairs. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Liz stops returning her mother's calls. She's calling 10, 15 times a day. She calls every Friday evening and leaves a message wishing her a good Shabbos, a good Sabbath. But Liz won't be pulled back in. As she writes, I did what women have always done. I cut off the risk to my children. The reminder of how dangerous she could be made me quail when I thought of them caught up in her vortex. I did for them what I had never been able in 40 years to do for myself. Admit that taking responsibility for insanity only spreads the insanity around. So your mother is evicted. Yes. So after a little bit over three years, the judgment finally went through and the marshal arrived with a drill and drilled through the lock and they brought my mother to an intake shelter in the Bronx. I don't know if she was surprised or if she had expected it had happened. Her aide had packed her a suitcase and took her personal stuff with her. But I I think they give you half an hour to pack, and she was gone. Shortly after Liz's mother is forced to leave the apartment, it falls on Liz to go clear out her things. Amid the detritus of a life, there are boxes, files, documents, that is, proof, in the form of letters and exchanges from neighbors who had expressed worry over Liz and the sounds that were coming out of the apartment. Liz also makes a staggering discovery when she finds a certain book. Her mother, quite amazingly, owns a book titled Understanding the Borderline Mother by an author named Christine Larson. Further proof. By owning this book, on some level, her mother must have known. She was so sick yet not so sick that she didn't know that this was the very malady that plagued her. It was an extraordinary moment. The the dust jacket was off the book, and I flipped open the front cover, and I just bellowed with astonishment that this was what I had found. And, you know, to to this day, I'm, I'm not sure why she bought that book. My mother was a voracious reader of all kinds of books and a lot of self-help. And... It wasn't clear to me, because borderline personality disorder can be passed down from parent to child, as the the parent who is in such pain creates a traumatic experience for for the next child. And now, having read her mother's letters to other family members, I believe that she also suffered in the same way. So I, I don't know if my mother bought it, seeing herself as the adult child of someone with BPD, or if she saw herself in it as the parents. And either way, you know, there was a dental cleaning reminder card tucked into page 13. She clearly didn't get very far one way or the other. You describe reading passages from that book aloud to Ari in bed, you know, that that feeling of just being completely understood in a book. 
of just, yeah, that's exactly it. That's what went on between us. It was incredible to read about other people who had had similar experiences. There were stories in there that were far worse than what my mother had suffered. There were people in the book talking about how they slept with a knife under their pillow all through their childhood. Um, my mother was capable of hurting me, but I knew she would not kill me. That was that was never my concern. But it was amazing to read other stories of people who had grown up in this entirely constructed fairy tale life. You know, my mother had created the story for us that you know she was mourning her dead husband, living in uh, austere celibacy, and that she had the sort of perfect high achieving child and everything looks great. Except of course I was a raving depressed mess. She had been having an affair with a married man for the majority of her adult life. Uh, she was not a widow. She had never been married to my father. She had me living under a false social security number. I mean, she just constructed the Truman Show for us and, and none of it was real. Liz's mother is taken to a shelter where the limit for a stay is supposed to be two weeks. She stays for five. At one point, a social worker at the shelter calls Liz to tell her that her mother has stopped showering. That really shook me up. My mother was uh, very big on cleanliness. And that, I think, really let me know that what was happening was no longer stubbornness and no longer her putting on any kind of shtick, but that she was really descending into this last phase in her life. And when, you know, uh, telling friends about it, I said that I could see a couple of outcomes. Either she would neglect her hygiene so much she would, you know, get an infection and die. Or she would get in a fight with someone and would be arrested and the justice system would take over where the shelter system had stopped. Or she would get sick in some other way and go to the hospital and then the health system would take over. But that we had now reached a crisis point where this three years couldn't just unspool forever anymore. She couldn't stall anymore. There were now enough people involved in her life that something was going to change. And sure enough, um, after about five weeks, the social worker called to let me know that she had been taken to an assist living facility in Coney Island, Brooklyn, with the unbelievably amazing name of Mermaid Manor. And if I'm ever get to write a TV series, I will call it Mermaid Matter because this is just, the fact that such a place exists just tickles me so much. And we felt that it was, this was the dream come true. This was the answer that we had been looking for because all along we kept thinking, should we just go rescue her? Should we just go pick her up? You know, everyone who called me, the court evaluator, the social workers kept saying, when are you coming to get her? And then I would explain she wasn't allowed access to my children because she could be too violent. And then there would be this silence, right? And we would try to figure out what if we pay her rent? What if we do this? What if we do that? And every solution we came up with uh, would not solve the problem because she had reached a point where she could no longer pay the rent and she would not willingly live anywhere else. And so we thought maybe this is the magic solution where she is now somewhere safe. You know, she has one roommate instead of six. They're feeding her. There's someone watching after her. It's going to be okay. And for two weeks, I would talk to her every now and then. And like, she had found her dentures again. She sounded normal. She sounded chipper. It seemed like things are going to be great. And then after two weeks, I get a call from their social worker saying, your mother has gone to the hospital and she hasn't come back. So she ended up in the hospital for about a week and she refused to let anyone examine or touch her. And so, you know, one day the... The doctor calls me and says, we have a few minutes, I can intubate her, but she is dying right now. Uh, and I was alone in the house, I had just gotten home from work. And I knew that you know, my mother hated medical care. She had me at home in 1978 so that she wouldn't have to go to a hospital or have any trouble with doctors. I knew that it, the disaster for her would be extending her life. Uh, and so I said, I said, no, don't, don't intubate her, let her go. And so they put me on speakerphone and I just listened for six or seven minutes as I heard nurses rustling around and, you know, clipboard being put down and what I had never before thought to think of as the sounds of death, which are very logistical in a lot of the ways. I heard the sheets 
rustling. You know, she she coughed. I heard a little choke, and then there was silence and footsteps. And the doctor, whose voice is wavering, because my mother had had herself checked into the rheumatology ward when she arrived, and I imagine you do not have a lot of deaths in rheumatology, tells me that she, that she is gone. And because I'm not there, all I can do is imagine it, right? That this, there has been this death. The two great dramas of our lives are birth and death. And now we have the death and it is over. And now they have to pull up the sheet and do the paperwork. And we hang up and I'm just standing alone in my living room. And I've been listening to a podcast when the call came in. And so this American life just turns right back on and starts squeaking into earbuds. And it was the most surreal thing that had happened because to me, my mother, despite how much she had become diminished, was still that Gorgon of my childhood. She was so powerful. And she had always been sick, but she had never been dying until she was dead. Do you think that there's something about the dynamic of having a mother like yours where it seems impossible that they will predecease you? That you're just going to be in it together forever and ever? They're, they're, they're so all-powerful that somehow... It's never going to end. I absolutely thought my mother was going to be the first modern woman to live to the age of 160. She was going to be the Jewish Methuselah. <laughs> and she was going to outlive all of us running on a pure diet of entomine sheet cakes and vitriol. I could not have imagined a world in which she was dead until very, very suddenly she was. You wrote, and God, did I relate to this, um... The world without her felt safer than it ever had before. Yeah. um, Life as my mother's daughter could be very booby-trapped. My mother had seen at one stage in her life a hypnotist in addition to a psychiatrist when she was trying to stop smoking. She found it very helpful, but she couldn't afford to go very often, so she made tapes of the sessions and saved them. And after her death, I found these recordings of her therapy sessions, and I went through this whole ethical quandary. You know, I would be, man, I would be furious if someone ever listened to tapes of my therapy. But on the other hand, maybe there were stories on there. Maybe there was more news. Maybe there was something about my father she hadn't, that I never knew. Maybe there was something about her that I never knew, right? So many mysteries still to be found out. And listening to them was very validating because she, she presents all these stories to the psychiatrist of how I have betrayed her and let her down. And those stories were such things as I had gone on vacation with my first girlfriend, during which time it it turns out, and she relates the story as if these are totally reasonable things to do. She had gotten some of her friends and mine to research the hotel she knew we were staying at on the internet and sent her pictures of it. She called the front desk and asked security to watch me. Those kinds of things were for her the acts of a loving mother. And that went on for years and years. And in the three years when she was declining and caught up in the legal system, we just kept finding out more things that I hadn't known. More things about the doctor who it turns out was cashing her social security checks. More uh, ways in which she had angered the landlord. And when she died, there was this line in the sand that there might still be things to find out. There might still be papers I haven't found but she can't spring any more on me. That story is at an end. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. I'm late. I'm late. Very important. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Come.